Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This episode contains explicit content about sex and language that goes along with that, which is not really anything new for the Puberty Podcast, but there's just a lot more of it in this episode than usual. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. We're going to talk about sex, but as we do, it's important to know that many of the studies out there measuring sexual activity are measuring one kind of sex, vaginal intercourse. This is an entirely heteronormative definition of sex, and it misses a ton of other types of sex like oral or anal. While these types of sex don't carry with them a risk of pregnancy, they do carry other risks, STIs, STDs, not to mention all of the emotional consequences that go along with being sexually active. This definition also excludes any discussion of masturbation or self-pleasure. So today, we're going to talk about sex much more broadly than most of the studies And we hope that in your families, you will be inclusive as you talk about sex as well. So Vanessa, let's start with asking the question, who needs to know what, when? And for this episode, we're asking about school-age kids. School-age kids are kindergarten through 
depending upon when your elementary school ends, it might be fifth grade, it might be sixth grade, it might be eighth grade. So that say it's an amorphous bucket and we'll have a separate episode about tweens where there's a lot of overlap. But this episode is dedicated to school-age kids who needs to know what, when. So you want to start us off? So let's start with what we actually encourage people to teach their kids from the very beginning. The most important thing is using the correct anatomical language for all different body parts. And there's actually a new book out called Your Whole Body Book that is written for younger kids. And it covers every part of the body, including genitals, in a very inclusive and no-nonsense way. Anatomical names can be hard for people to use if they didn't grow up in home. So if you're an adult who didn't grow up in a home, using words like penis and vagina and vulva and testicles, we see you and we hear you and we know that it's hard. But just like anything else in parenting, even if we didn't grow up with it, we can do it differently because it's about our kids' health and safety. Okay, I'm going to jump in. When I was in practice, I used to keep a list of all of the non-anatomical names that people call different parts of their body. And the reason I did this is partly that it was amazing how many names people made up. But it was also amazing to realize that there is so much room for miscommunication. So let's just remind people a little bit about why we tell them to use the right anatomical names. And that is that If you're calling a penis a penis, and then you say, my penis hurts, everyone knows what part of the body hurts. But if it's my yin-yang or my hoo-ha or, you know, I mean, (laughs) there are are a lot of names. I like how you get a Southern accent when you use the nicknames for genitals. Every time. (laughs) The hoo-ha. Fred. (laughs) I've heard them all. But I think the piece to this that is the most important for us to communicate to the adults in these kids' lives so that these kids can then get the message is that if we're not all using the same words, then it's really, really hard to communicate with someone who doesn't know your code language. And that code language can feel so bonding. And that was the sweetness of it. It was another reason I kept the list. It was an incredible thing to see a parent and a child have a conversation using code language that totally connected them. But unfortunately, what connects them sometimes disconnects them from conversation with other people like healthcare professionals who might need to help them down the road. And it's never too late. So if you have a fourth grader with whom you have not been using the correct anatomical language, it's okay. This is your moment to go to them and say, hey, you know what, kiddo? I know we've been calling your vagina a mushy all these years, but I just recently learned that it's actually much safer for you if you use the word vagina. And so even if it feels silly or funny or uncomfortable for both of us, we're going to change what we do in our family and we're going to start using that language. So it's never too late and it's okay to acknowledge that you made a mistake and you should have been doing it all along and now we're going to change how things go in our house. So anatomical names, super important. The other thing that you should have or might have been talking about already in your home is consent. So Cara, you want to talk a little bit about what 
let's say you've got a first grader. What would the conversation about consent have looked like up to this point? Yeah, so people often think that conversations around consent only have to do with sex. And they don't. Conversations around consent have to do with permission. Do you give someone permission to do something or say something? And does that person give you permission, either in return or as a one-way street? So consent is actually something that kids begin learning very, very young. We call it sharing, right? And we ask kids, I mean, this is sort of a pre-COVID concept of sharing, but the world is returning to a little bit of pre-COVID normalcy. So we'll see a little bit more of it. But you know, you you wouldn't just take something from a friend at preschool, you're taught to ask their permission or their consent. Well, for school-age kids, those lessons of consent, they look a little bit different. So in kindergarten and first grade, they might look like sharing, or they might look like permission to play together, or they might look like permission to join your group of friends eating lunch, all of which are conversations That sounds something like, can I, and then fill in the blank with the thing that you're craving or need or that you hope to do. Another way that consent can be taught in those early school age years is checking in with someone about what they need. So if your child sees another child crying, they can go over and say, can I help you? Is there anything you need? That's a a very, very early form of consent. I'm checking in to see if you need your space or you want me around. But as kids get older and move through the school age years, consent conversations really do have to begin to incorporate relationships and sexual feelings. And that's because, as we talk about on almost every episode (laughs) of our podcast, puberty begins for many, many, many kids while they are still school age, right? So the average age of pubertal onset for girls is between eight and nine, and for boys is between nine and 10, and that is squarely in school age. And along with those hormonal surges and those body changes also will often come, although not always, but often will come early sexual feelings, crushes, liking someone, wanting to be closer with someone. Sometimes that's the extent of it. Oftentimes, that's the extent of it. But those feelings then begin to require a concept of consent. Because if you want to be close to someone and they don't want you close to them, they don't have consent or you don't have consent. And I see this a lot because I've worked with so many girls over the years in very close friendships between girls that are not necessarily romantic, just very intense, caring, loving friendships There's a lot of physical touch. There's a lot of hugging and playing with hair and squeezing and sitting on laps and touching backpacks and wanting to be next to each other in line and all of that proximity, that physical proximity. But sometimes there's an imbalance in those friendships and one child really, really, really wants to be super close physically to the other person and the other person really doesn't want it. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen one child stroking and touching and squeezing their friend. And the friend has this look of sort of uh, is aghast, but silent. And so part of what we want to do is help kids have the language at this age, right? Where it's about sort of some discomfort. It's not about danger or 
you know, physical worry. It's just discomfort so that when they are older and in situations where it is scary and dangerous, they have developed the language. So one of the things that we like to say to kids is, hey, you don't have to suffer in silence. If you don't want someone touching your hair or rubbing the sequins on your shirt, you can just say, hey, please don't touch my body or that doesn't feel good or maybe later. And the number one thing that kids tell me they worry about and they don't, the reason they don't say that to their friends is because they worry that their friends will be mad at them and don't want to be friends with them. And adults need to take that worry very seriously because it feels like a big deal to kids. Yeah. And for the parents of the kids who are the touchers and the the close-up, want to be in someone else's space, kids. There's nothing wrong with that temperament and that personality. There's something quite beautiful about it a lot of the times. But they have to arm those kids with some language too um, because it helps with those social interactions. And so is this okay with you? Is a great question. It's a question that when we talk about consent in a sexual situation for teenagers, That's a question that we teach teenagers to ask, you know, is this okay? Are you into this? What are you into? There's a version of that that you can apply all the way down to the grade school years, whether it's in a friendship or in a sort of a budding feeling, romantic feeling kind of relationship, where if you teach the child who's full of the feelings to say, is this okay with you? And to be open to a kid who says, actually, no, can you not do that and not take it personally? That Can you imagine how much healthier it is for the kid who's the toucher, who's the feeler, to hear those words and learn to be okay with it? It changes the trajectory, actually, of their emotional life in many ways if you arm them with the words. So consent in the school age years before romantic relationships develop but as emotions are starting to intensify, um, the words are often really, really similar to the words that kids are going to use a few years down the road. And I want to piggyback on this to talk about touch. What is okay touch from adults and what adults can see our kids' bodies, what adults can't see our kids' bodies, right? We we grew up with the kind of the stranger danger culture. but. We never really, I don't remember going deep on the conversations about counselors and sports coaches. and crazy? We grew up with stranger danger, but no conversation around when, you know, your relative so-and-so fill in the blank gives you a hug that feels uncomfortable. Come talk to me. I will help you with the words. Like there was this big well, disconnect. Well, because it was, but there's a hint in the word, right? Stranger mm-hmm. danger. It was the mm-hmm. assumption that people who you knew, people in your life were not a danger to you. So one of the things that we like to advise parents to do is help their kids make two kinds of lists. One list is who are the people who are allowed to see our children naked, who are allowed to touch their bodies, right? So it's their pediatrician, it's their parents, there may be a caregiver at home who's responsible for it's bathing. It's a short list. It's a very short list. And that list yeah. may not in, may not necessarily include grandparents or aunts and uncles or close family friends, right? It's a very short list. Now, every family has a different structure and a different caregiving structure. And it may be that People who are not blood related to your child are actually the people caring for them. And that's 
totally fine, but you need to be really explicit about who can see and touch your kid's body. And as your kids are making their way through the school age years, as they're heading towards middle school, they should become participants in that list, right? right? So instead of us telling them, hey, these are the only people who can touch your body, you can ask, hey, remember that list we always used to make? Who do you think should be on that list? Because asking them to participate in their own safety emboldens them and empowers them and lets them know that you are open to the conversation if they feel uncomfortable. So who needs to know what, when, when you're in the school age years? You need to know the anatomical parts. You need to know basic concepts about consent. You need to know how to determine when adult touch is and isn't okay and comfortable for you, and when other kids' touch is and isn't okay. Just that list right there, Vanessa, that's a lot of conversations. That's a lot of conversations. And as we always say, talking to our kids about their bodies and their growing up is a million tiny conversations. You do not need to sit your kid down after you listen to this episode for two hours and run through all of this. This may take you a couple of months to get through. And so here we are. We've told you there are all these conversations and we haven't even gotten to the biggest conversation. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Vanessa, we literally have 3 minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious 
and healthy and still fit into that tiny window? Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking shit with your best friends in your living room. So Cara, (laughs) yes, Vanessa, the second grader in my house comes home and says to me, mom, how are babies made? What do I say? I ask you a question before we 
delve into that one. So just everyone, please note, whenever I ask Kara a question, she basically says, I will get to that. But first, I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> like a journalist. <laughs> Vanessa, was this a firstborn child? Oh, good one. Uh, yes, it's a firstborn child. It's the first time I'm having this conversation with a child for whom I am caring. And the reason I ask that question is that second grade is actually on the earlier side to be asked, although not necessarily in a family where kids have a lot of older cousins or older influences and not necessarily in a family where kids are consuming content that has a lot of this information in it and maybe actually very educational content. It doesn't have to be racy content, but the more typical timing just to level set is probably a couple of years later than that. For That's the- for the question of how we're, because I was thinking what is sex is later, how our babies are made is oh, earlier. Oh, I see the distinction. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing that I do this for a living and I immediately was going to give you an answer that about was sex. about sex. And so this That's goes, my job. This goes to prove <laughs> the point that the very best answer you can ever give when prompted with a question that overwhelms you is the following. Vanessa, it's so interesting that you ask me that question. What made you think of it? Because it contextualizes it. And if you're ever caught on the spot and you're not sure what to say, just picture Kara saying this in your head. That's such a great question. What makes you ask that? And that buys you at least a minute. So, so how are babies made? How are babies made? I might have a pregnant, you might be pregnant. I might have a pregnant teacher or babysitter. Yeah. I might and have second watched. grade is totally common for that. In fact, first grade is very common for that as well. And if there are older siblings in the house, kindergarten and younger is a time where that And a lot of schools do a baby unit where they will talk about this. However, as we know, kids need to be exposed to information multiple times before they can really incorporate it into their minds. And so even if they're doing a, quote, baby unit, that doesn't mean they remember all the details. So your response to your child should not be, wait, aren't they covering this in school? Ask your teacher. Your response to your child is, I'm I'm putting on Cara's voice, That's such an interesting (laughs) question. What made you say that, right? You never want to shut down a question your kid is asking you. Okay, so what do I say, Cara? My first grader, my second grader, they come home, they ask me this. What do I say? So I actually really would first say, that's such an interesting question. What made you think of it? And the most common answer that kids give is, well, Billy's mom has a baby in her belly or, you know, Susie's dad just brought a new baby home. And so there's you know, there's some context there. There's some, the kids want to know actually, like literally, where did the baby come from? And it's the beginning of questioning their own origin story in many ways. And to the kindergarten, first, second grader, the appropriate answer is not the entire story of reproduction, but the appropriate answer is the very shortened story of fertilization and baby growth in a womb. So fertilization is that in order for a baby to be made, two pieces come together. There is something called a sperm and there is something called an egg and they join together to make a baby. And that baby grows in a womb and it takes about nine months, although some babies come out sooner and then the baby is born into the world. You'll notice a few things I left out. So I left out the gender of the parents 
And that's because it's really important to be inclusive in your language when you describe who parents are. And there are lots of different family setups. And so where a baby comes from, how a baby's actually made, and the genders under living under one roof, sometimes those things are in conflict and you don't need to explain quite yet to a first grader or a second grader that piece. They'll ask you when they're ready to understand that piece. The second thing I left off was who's carrying the baby? Same, a version of the same, right? So there doesn't have to be a description of the mother because the mother is the person who raises a child. And sometimes there's a mother in a house and sometimes there is not. The birth mother, um, and, and some people use that language with really young kids, but the birth mother concept gets confusing in the very beginning. And, you know, certainly there are lots of people who have family origin stories that include adoption, IVF, surrogacy. Uh, so those pieces don't necessarily need to be explained right away. I will say, though, I come from a family of four kids, two of whom were adopted at birth. And I do think that those narratives and owning those narratives are really, really important in families that have that story. So if you're listening and you have a first grader and adoption is part of your story, and that's a really important thing to put into the story from the beginning, there is a way to weave it in that becomes kind of a a permanent arc. For some families, that's earlier. And for some families, it's a little bit later. I also noticed that you didn't say a man puts his penis inside of a woman's vagina. I did not. So talk us through. That's not what happens in in vitro fertilization. (laughs) So that's not what happens in in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. That's not what happens in surrogacy. That's not what happens um, in other ways that embryos are made. Yes. So why else might you not use that specific language? Because in the early school age years, most kids are not really ready to go there with the information. And again, you know, we keep mentioning the arc of this story. This is a many conversations over many years story. And the arc of this conversation in the school age years needs to end with some mechanics. You do need to get to conversations about intercourse before kids, I believe, before they can stumble across it online accidentally. So I I personally believe that people, by the time their kids are in about fourth grade, should be having conversations about sex and different kinds of intercourse because otherwise that information is going to find them. But first grade and second grade, you, you don't need that yet. So let's assume we're talking about a fourth or fifth grader. We want them to be aware of some of the mechanics so that if and when they stumble across it online, they understand what they're seeing, they have some language for it. We also talked about being inclusive about different kinds of sex. And I would imagine that there are lots of people for whom it might be, and I'm going to ask you for language about this, it might be not so bad to talk about a penis inside of a vagina, but it might be a lot harder to talk about other kinds of sex like anal sex or oral sex. And so how are we inclusive without giving them more information than we think they can handle? Yeah. So uh, let me just start by saying that I don't believe inclusivity means 
not talking about very common things that happen. (laughs) So it is a very common path to pregnancy that man inserts his penis into a woman's vagina and a baby is made. That is, so to not talk about that path is as as wrong as it is to make the, the conversation exclusively about that path. But that being said, you can always use the phrase one way. One way a baby is made is when, and then you go on to describe it. The other piece of your question is about the stigmatization around talking about non-vaginal intercourse. I agree with you. As much as it just puts people over the edge sometimes to think about talking about vaginal intercourse, they many of those people describe being completely incapable of describing or talking about other forms of intercourse. Um, but it's really important. So the way that I teach it in a classroom, the way that I always used to talk about it with my own kids, and I think an easier way to go about it is to say to your kids, again, when the time is right and when you are ready, although 50% of them, some studies show, have seen porn by the end of fifth grade, so keep that in mind, okay, that you say, hey, we're going to talk about sex. And there are actually four kinds of sex, okay? And I'm going to define them for you, and then I am available to answer any question you have. So one type of sex is vaginal intercourse, where a penis goes into a vagina. One type of sex is anal sex. And that's where a penis or a digit like fingers will go into an anus. Third type of sex is oral sex. And that's where maybe a penis or some other body part of vagina goes into someone's mouth or the mouth goes on to those organs. And the fourth kind of sex is sex with yourself, self-pleasure, masturbation. Those are the four general categories. And I want to talk about them all when you're ready. And we don't have to talk about all of them at once. And that, just outlining it that way, it's a lot of information. Do you know which one parents are the most freaked out about? Masturbation. Masturbation. That's the one. So some of you may be listening to Kara calmly outline these four kinds of sex, thinking to yourself, there is no way in hell I will ever be comfortable doing at least three of those, if not four of those, right? It's hard. It's, it's complicated. Hard. It depends where we, how we grew up, where we come from, what our religion is, what our culture is. It is hard. And the best way to start if you find it to be hard is to say to your kid, this is hard for me. This is awkward, but it's really important that I give you this information. And so we're going to sit down and talk about it bit by bit, literally bit by bit. And I might mess it up and I'm sweating and my I'm I'm anxious and my heart that. is racing, but it's really important that I talk to you about it. And so we're going to just start. Right. No matter how awkward it is for you, it's that awkward for me or more so. Show your kids your cards, right? So I want to finish this section of the series on how to talk about sex with kids at different ages with a question we get a lot, which is, what happens if my kid asks me a question about my own sex life and my own sexual experience? How do I respond to that? I love that question because 
100% of the people listening to this podcast will get that question at some point. Vanessa, you have gotten it. I have gotten it. And it is not only a guarantee of a question, but it's actually a sign that your kid feels like they can come to you and ask you what they know is, and no pun intended, yes, pun intended, an incredibly (laughs) intimate question. Pun is always intended. (laughs) Pun, Pun is always intended with me. It's an incredibly intimate question and they're going there and it's a moment for you to connect with your kid and be honest with your kid in a really, really important way so that they, when they become sexually active, can do the same and connect with you. That said, Vanessa, some kids ask that question before they're ready for the information. Some kids are asking it really young. They don't mean it in this deep and meaningful and connecting way. They have heard the question and they think they can prompt you and make you feel vulnerable. Other kids are asking it almost to weaponize it, right? That that happens sometimes. So you have to read the room, prepare yourself for the question. And depending upon where the child or the various kids who live in your house or who are in your life, depending upon where they are in terms of age and stage, those kids need to get maybe a a different answer from you if you're if you're looking at a large group of them. So I'm going to leave it at this very simple piece of advice. When you're asked when you had sex or if you've had sex, don't forget that way down the road, your goal for your kid is that they have an incredibly healthy, loving relationship with someone. And that includes sex. And if you demonize sex in your conversations, especially when they ask about your history, you close the door for them to have conversations about healthy and good and safe sex with you down the road. So I'll just finish with a line that I use with my daughter when she asked me, and it was this, you can come and ask me any question you want. I am always here. There are going to be times when I may choose not to answer that particular question in that particular moment. If I choose to keep something private, that does not mean I will never answer the question. It may mean that I'm just deciding it's not the appropriate time for us to have that conversation. So always, always, always validate and affirm the question while still maintaining your privacy if that's what you want to do. I can't wait to talk about tweens on the next episode. (laughs) Me too. Bye, Cara. Bye, Vanessa. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.